Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled, Improving the Standard of Care in Community-Based HER2-Positive Metastatic Breast Cancer is provided by Prova Education. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. HER2-positive breast cancer accounts for about 15 to 20% of all breast cancer cases. Historically, HER2-positive breast cancer was associated with an increased risk for the development of systemic metastases as well as brain metastases and a poor overall survival. Looking ahead, there are innovative drugs that are currently in development and in clinical trials that are showing great promise for these patients. This is CME on ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Sarah Hurwitz. And I'm Dr. Bill Gradishar. And I'm Dr. Nancy Lin. Today, we're going to go through two patient cases to illustrate therapeutic selection, management of treatment-related adverse events, and what future treatment options look like for HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer. This program follows a previous case-based simulation activity titled Optimizing Community-Based Decisions, HER2-Positive Metastatic Breast Cancer, where we collected the choices made by you and your peers in the second-line and third-line settings for metastatic breast cancer. In this program, we will analyze those choices and further discuss our optimal recommendations as a panel. If you haven't participated in the simulation and would like to put yourself to the test, you can find the link to the activity in the related section below. Let's get started with our first case. Our first patient is a 48-year-old patient who presented with ER-positive, PR-positive, and HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer with liver metastases. She received first-line treatment with six cycles of induction docetaxel paired with trastuzumab and pertuzumab, and she achieved a complete response by imaging in the breast and liver, as well as significant improvement in the bone metastases. She continued on maintenance therapy with trastuzumab plus pertuzumab every three weeks and added in at this time an aromatase inhibitor given that the tumor was hormone receptor co-expressing. Unfortunately, the patient had disease progression four years later, however, with new liver and lung lesions. Dr. Gratishar, based on this patient's characteristics, how would you approach her second-line treatment strategy? This patient clearly had disease responsive to her two-directed therapy, had a prolonged response with her first treatment, but now as a recurrence, I would certainly consider rebiopsying to confirm the markers that she was indeed remaining HER2 positive as well as ER positive. But if we were having this discussion six months ago, we may have said something different than we say today. And that is that a while back, it would have been TDM1, but based on the recent presentation of the DESTINY-3 trial, we know that a comparison of trastuzumab-deruxtecan to TDM1 showed that trastuzumab-deruxtecan was markedly better than TDM1 in this exact setting. And specifically, what I'm referring to is the fraction of patients that responded was double in those that got trastuzumab-deruxtecan. And more importantly, if you look at the time until the disease progressed, and you look at those curves, we often have used this phrase in describing the data, is that you could drive a truck through the difference between the PFS curves. 
So the median has not yet been reached in trastuzumab deruxtecan, and it was around six months or so in those patients receiving TDM1. So a marked improvement in what our expectations are with trastuzumab deruxtecan, and there is at least a numerical advantage early on with respect to survival. So today, we would say that trastuzumab deruxtecan would be the appropriate choice in a patient like the one you described. I agree. Those data were incredibly practice-changing. Dr. Lin, do you have any additional insights as to how you would treat this patient? Do you want to provide any thoughts on if there is a patient in whom you would treat with TDM1 as opposed to TDXD in light of these new data? Sure. I think the data are really impressive, as you've heard. And the delta as far as PFS and as well as objective response rate is so striking that most patients I'm going to be offering TDXD. But there are patients who are more frail, who perhaps would be concerned about the toxicity profile of TDXD, which is honestly a little bit harder than TDM1, in whom I would offer TDM1 as an alternative. Now I think we'll move on to our second patient, Our second patient is a 55-year-old woman who presented with HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer, and she's experienced a relatively indolent disease course. She received standard first-line therapy with docetaxel, trastuzumab, and pertuzumab, and did quite well for several years, and then in second line received TDM1, which was the standard of care at that time. Now her disease is progressing in her lungs, and she's recently developed a worsening in her migraine headaches. Imaging is done given the increased frequency of the headaches, and she's found to have multiple brain metastases. So I want to ask you, Dr. Lin, how you would approach this patient who now not only has progression of disease systemically or extracranially, but also has now brain metastases. What third line regimen would you recommend here? Sure. So what was chosen in the simulation was that about 50% of providers did not choose to catnib plus trastuzumab and capecitabine. About a third of providers chose TDXD in this third-line setting for a patient with brain metastases. I would argue that in this situation, the combination of tocatinib, capecitabine, and trastuzumab really has the strongest supportive data and that's based on the randomized HER2-CLIMB trial, and that trial randomized patients to either trastuzumab capecitabine or trastuzumab capecitabine and tocatinib. In particular, almost half the patients in the study, almost 300 patients, had brain metastases on study entry, so that's a very substantial subset of the overall population. And in that population of patients, there was significantly higher intracranial response rate longer progression-free survival, longer time to CNS progression, and better overall survival associated with tocatinib. So I think that's really high-level evidence for the use of tocatinib in patients with brain metastases. Level one evidence thus supporting the use of tocatinib, capecitabine, and trastuzumab in this setting, given those randomized data showing not only a progression-free survival benefit, but overall survival benefit as well. I found the data to be very compelling and indeed The FDA has approved this regimen in not only the third line setting where this study took place, but also in the second line setting, especially for patients with brain metastases. 
keeping that in mind, Bill, I'd like to pivot back to you and just ask you if there are any patients like this who have progression systemically as well as in the brain in whom you would use TDXD instead of a tucatinib-based approach. Well, the most compelling evidence that supports an active agent in the CNS, as outlined by Nancy, is tucatinib in the HER2 climb regimen. But that said, and then she emphasized the nuances that we have with these kind of patients, there may be somebody who has very limited CNS disease, you know, the little ditzel in the brain or something that's not too symptomatic, but the bulk of her problem really lies below the neck. And in that particular patient, you may choose, if you had a choice between a tucatinib-based regimen and trastuzumab duroxacan, to take the latter, that is trastuzumab duroxacan because the CNS is not the pressing issue. Whereas in other situations, tucatinib would clearly be the better choice in the HER2-CLIMB regimen. Thank you so much for those insights. For those just tuning in, you're listening to CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Sarah Hurwitz, and here with me today are Dr. Bill Gratishar and Dr. Nancy Lin. We're just about to delve deeper into the treatment and management of patients with HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer. And now that we have discussed these two clinical scenarios regarding the management of patients with HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer, let's turn our attention to the management of adverse events. While adverse events cannot be entirely avoided, there are ways to prevent, mitigate, and manage them, especially up front with our patients being treated for HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer. Dr. Gratishar, what are some of the main treatment-related adverse events that you see with these newer therapies such as tucatinib and TDXD, and how would you manage them or aim to mitigate or prevent them in the clinic? Starting out with trastuzumab duroxacan, the side effect that got everybody's attention immediately was ILD and pneumonitis. And in fact, in the initial trial in breast cancer, there were a few patients that actually died from ILD. In the DESTINY3 trial, comparing trastuzumab duroxacan to TDM1, we didn't see that level or grade of toxicity. It was mostly low-grade toxicity and relatively infrequent. I think there are a couple things that we have to be aware of. One is we have to have a heightened sensitivity to any respiratory symptoms a patient may have. At the same time, we have to recognize that if we're scanning, looking for things like that, recognizing that patients have had radiation in the past. So you might see lung changes. They're not related to a drug toxicity, but maybe related to prior therapy. So for most patients, they aren't going to experience ILD, but we have to make patients aware of this as a potential side effect and have the, encourage them to tell us if they're having any respiratory symptoms. If there's any increased grade that we equate with that symptom, then we may have to hold or stop the drug. But certainly for low-grade ILD or pneumonitis, introduction of steroids early often is sufficient to mitigate the side effects and allow continuing the therapy. We have, you know, if you look at the package insert, there's relatively vague, but at the same time, common sense guidelines for how to manage this. And I think as we get more experience, we may have more granular recommendations. With respect to tucatinib, probably the biggest concern most people have is with the GI symptoms, including diarrhea. And not unlike other agents that can cause GI symptoms, 
We simply have to make patients aware of the potential for this side effect. And if they experience it using agents such as loperamide or other similar agents to mitigate that side effect, allowing patients to continue on. And since it's given with a triplet of drugs, meaning trastuzumab, capecitabine, and ducatinib, it may allow us to adjust one of the other drugs, specifically capecitabine, which could offset the side effect that they're complaining about, that is, say, diarrhea. So we may not have to adjust the dose of ducatinib. Thank you so much for that great overview. I think it is notable that in our simulation, about 50% of the providers did not select to hold therapy for grade one pneumonitis. And now, as we know, on, on studies evaluating TDXD for grade one asymptomatic ILD, where we only see it on imaging, it's important to hold therapy and monitor closely. So thank you so much for going in depth on, on the management of these AEs. Uh, Dr. Lin, do you have anything you want to add in terms of the management of toxicity with these newer agents that, that we haven't touched upon? You know, I think that it can be tempting with TDXD, given the very high response rates, to really be fairly loose about the timing of the restaging imaging. But I'm fairly strict about it with TDXD, not because I'm worried that the disease has progressed, but because I want to get a look at the lungs on a regular basis, really looking for that asymptomatic grade one ILD to be able to intervene early on it rather than waiting for patients to become symptomatic. And then the other point is just that TDXD is associated with more nausea than TDM1. And so patients do need to have pre-medications appropriately to prevent nausea. This has really been a very fascinating conversation with both of you. But before we wrap up, Bill and Nancy, do you have any take-home messages that you'd like to share with our audience, first with Bill? Well, I think the most exciting thing is that we have a continued introduction of new drugs we can offer patients. And with each step we take, I think we are moving the curve to the right where patients are living longer. And although it's not the subject tonight, there are even other drugs coming along. So I think the prospect for patients living a longer life is good. And at the same time, we're learning how to manage the side effects so that patients can have good quality life. Yeah, I would echo those comments and say that the survival numbers that we quote patients as far as five-year survival estimates in HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer are mostly based in the pre-tecatinib, pre-TDXD era. And I think it'll be really interesting to see how those numbers might change and improve as we have better therapies for the metastatic space. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank our audience for listening in and thank you, Bill and Nancy, for joining me and sharing all your valuable insights and expertise. It was great speaking with you today. Thanks so much. Thank you. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Prova Education. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash Prova. Thank you for listening.